As you're being seated, if you'll find your Bible, open it up, turn it on. We're going to be in Luke chapter 11 today and verses 14 through 23. You know, whenever you go to a Ranger game, every game begins with the national anthem, and you stand, you put your hand over your heart, they sing the song, and it's whenever they get to the point, the crescendo of the song, and the land of the free, and that's when everybody starts clapping and and being amazed, and everybody starts getting excited. Why? Because I think our culture's primary core value is freedom. In our nation, within our culture, we value freedom virtually above all other things. In fact, if you think about the American experiment, it was designed that we would not have a king, that we would have a limited government where people would have a voice and where if you worked hard, that you could live the dream and you could set your own course in life. And so whenever graduates come to this defining moment, we talk to them about how, you know, you can be anything you want to be, you can go in different directions, and you will now set your own course in life. One of the concerns that our forefathers had would be that freedom would turn into a license for selfishness, and that with that, freedom would be abused because, and if freedom were abused, that the government would then have to start taking some of it away. And so they actually debated this amongst the founding fathers. And they came to a solution, and their thought was that they would have the church, and specifically the teachings of Jesus. And so what they believed is that people's walk with God would allow them to be free without abusing Freedom. Charles Carroll, who was one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence, actually wrote these words, Without morals, a republic cannot subsist any length of time. They, therefore, who are decrying the Christian religion, whose morality is so sublime and pure, and which ensures the good eternal happiness, are undermining the solid foundation of morals, then notice this, the best security for the duration of free governments. And so here was the idea, that if you embraced Jesus and you embraced the truths of Jesus, that that would allow you to embrace freedom, and your love for God would allow you to enjoy freedom without abusing it. Now, fast forward to today. Within our culture today, many will reject Christianity And one of the main reasons that's given for rejecting Christianity is that it's too restrictive of our freedom. Here's how the argument goes. I should be free to be whatever I want to be, to express myself however I want to express myself, to live my life however I want to live. Don't judge me, man. Jesus, though, calls me to place all of my faith, and to place my life in Him. And so this is viewed as God taking away your freedom. So many will reject Christianity because they feel that inherent within Christianity is the surrendering of freedom. And and many will reject Jesus because they view his moral absolutes as the primary opponent 
of a free society. Now let me rewind the DVR on that and make sure that you got that. Many will reject Christianity because they believe that the moral absolutes of Jesus, teachings that he gave in regards to uh, family, marriage, sexual ethic, things like that, they will view those as the primary opponent of a free society. Now, others will embrace Jesus, particularly this happens in the South, but they will only embrace Jesus halfway. They want the benefits of the cross. They want the forgiveness. They want the eternal life. They want to be a part of a church. They want the benefits of the cross, but they don't really want the Savior that died on the cross. And so they enjoy the social activities of the church. They enjoy the friendships that they have at church and raising their kids together in the children's ministry and going to VBS and being a part of the youth ministry. And they enjoy all of that, but they don't really enjoy the message of the church. When the people of God embrace the benefits and friendships of Christianity, but don't embrace the message of Christianity, then the house of God becomes a house divided against itself. Well, today we arrive in Luke chapter 11 and verse 14. And when we arrive on the scene, Jesus is freeing a man who had been totally seized by evil. His life was in every way shackled by the very presence of evil. He was going directly away from God in all areas of his life. And so verse 14 begins this way. Now, he, talking about Jesus, was driving out a demon that was mute. And when the demon came out, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowds were amazed. So here's this man who had a demon possession, and Jesus delivers him from the presence of evil. You see, there once was a little boy. I would imagine he's a lot like my four-year-old little boy. When you take him to Tractor Supply, you'd have to watch him because he would go off and play with all the little cars that were on the rack over there. This little boy enjoyed swim lessons, and he would put on his teenage mutant ninja swimsuit, and he would go down to the local YMCA and His mom and dad were so proud whenever he put his head underneath water. He enjoyed uh, a kid's meal from McDonald's. And even at the tender age of four, he discovered that you can get them half price on Wednesday nights. And So every Wednesday night, he would hit up his dad to go get him a kid's meal at McDonald's. He liked to play with Legos. He laughed. He loved. Had a contagious smile that everybody enjoyed being around. But then he got a little bit older. He started rebelling against some of the things that his mom and dad had taught him. In fact, he started rebelling against a lot of the things that he had been taught in church. And he was trying to chart his own course and be his own person. And he began making choices because he wanted to be free. And freedom always leads to choices. And choices always lead to consequences. Well, in this young man's life, the consequences began to fall down upon him because he was making some very, very bad choices. And eventually, he reached a point where no one could really recognize him because he was totally possessed by evil. To the degree that 
he couldn't even talk and carry on normal conversation. He had become an outcast of society, and to many, he was just a story of unrealized potential. What could have been, but will never be. But then he meets Jesus, and suddenly everything in this young man's life changes because Jesus frees him. He frees him from the shackles of evil, from slavery to the devil. He frees him to live the life that he had always been created to live. And no sooner did Jesus free this man from evil than he became the center of controversy. Look at verse 15. But some of them said, He drives out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. And others, as a test, were demanding of him a sign from heaven. So Jesus frees this young man from evil, and then some begin saying, well, Jesus is possessed by Satan. He's possessed by the devil himself, and Jesus is doing these miracles through demonic power. And so they began saying, okay, if if you're really the Son of God, if you are who you say you are, then give us a sign from heaven. You see, the religious people through Jesus' ministries were always in conflict with him. The religious people would redeem people with fear, and then they would try to hold people with rules. And they didn't like Jesus because he would redeem people with grace, and he would hold people with love. And so they make a staggering accusation against Jesus. They say, Jesus, you are possessed by the devil. You are demon-possessed and doing what you do through demonic power. You know you've arrived at the devil's house when you see God's work is evil and evil's work is godly. Can you imagine reaching a point where you look at the work of Jesus and you hear his message and you say, that is just dripping with evil. Well, Jesus in verse 17, the Bible says, knowing their thoughts, he told them. I love it when Jesus does this. He just kind of dives into what they're thinking. And Jesus never really dealt with the superficial. He always dove into the soul of the matter. And so knowing what they're thinking, he tells them, every kingdom divided against itself is headed to destruction, and a house divided against itself falls. If Satan also is divided against himself... How will his kingdom stand? For you say, I drive out demons by Beelzebul, and if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, who is it your sons drive them out by? For this reason, they will be your judges. If I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. So Jesus jumps into their thoughts, and he says basically, every kingdom uh, is divided against itself, is headed to destruction. Now what he is pointing out is why... Would Satan want to drive out demons from this young man? That makes no sense whatsoever. I remember whenever I was playing football, my coach, Coach Price, he was a classic football coach. He always wore those bike coaching shorts that only coaches wear, you know. Had the stripes on the side. He would wear the white socks that go all the way up to the knees. And he'd have the blue and yellow stripes on the socks. And he had the hat that came all the way down to here. And the white shirt with the Keller jacket or Keller High School jacket around it. You're like, Keller jacket? What are you talking about? And, uh, and he would have the whistle. And one of the things he loved to say is he loved to quote this verse. House divided against itself, men, always fails, always falls. We're a team. 
We can't be a house divided against ourselves. This is our house. Let us guard our house. We must defend our house. And he was always telling us, we're a team. House divided against itself will always fall. Woo! Go run, you know. You had the same coach, didn't you? Yeah. Well, the reality is, is that this verse has nothing to do with football. Okay? No matter how many Under Armour commercials talk about guard the house, this verse has nothing to do with football. Jesus is pointing out, why would Satan drive out demons? That didn't make any sense. If I'm possessed by evil, why would I be wanting to drive evil out from this man? Well, he continues, and his argument goes essentially, your own sons drive out demons from people, and whose power are they doing it by? If you say I'm doing it by uh, the devil's power, then who, who are your, your sons driving demons out with? And then ultimately he says, what you're seeing is the finger of God. And what you are seeing is the kingdom of God coming near to you. You know, it makes no sense to me why people who claim to love God would attack Jesus for freeing a man from evil. I think the greatest enemy of the church sometimes is the church. Christians can be so amazingly critical of one another. One of the things I'm thankful for here in our church is that we enjoy a unity and we enjoy a harmony. That doesn't mean that we always agree with one another. It doesn't mean that we always like each other. That's why some sit over here and some sit over here because you guys don't like each other. I'm kidding on that. We don't always have to agree with one another on things, but we can treat one another with godliness and respect, and we can talk to one another instead of talking about one another. And I'm so thankful to be a part of a church that has a healthy culture and a healthy spirit about it. I enjoy coming to church every Sunday, and I even enjoy coming back on Monday. This is really a a good church, but I see so many times where Christians just tear down one another and they divide their house from within. There are people within the community that they may not preach exactly as I preach or they may not think exactly as I do on every theological truth and those individuals are not my enemies. They love Jesus. They are committed to the gospel and we're on the same team. And one of the things that I hope to model to you is I don't spend my time criticizing other Christians and I pray that you don't as well. And let's realize that the other churches in the area, they are not our competition. They are our teammates. And the kingdom of God, the people of God, we have to be in this together because a house divided against itself will fall. Coach Price was right on that. You need unity. You need teamwork. Well, in verse 21, Jesus tells a parable. He says, when a strong man fully armed, guards his estate, his possessions are secure. But when one stronger than he attacks and overpowers him, he takes from him all his weapons he trusted in, and he divides up his plunder. Now Jesus is using this story in a symbolic way. He's wanting to teach a spiritual truth. Let me illustrate it. Paul Reed, our illustrious music minister, decides he wants to protect his music instruments. So he has his guitar, and he has the five iPads that he needs to lead us in worship, and he has an extra box of guitar strings because everybody knows that Paul breaks guitar strings like every, every song. And so he, he decides he's going to, uh, he, needs his, he needs his music stuff protected. 
And so he hires over here Chris Walker, a young A&M student, to protect his music. So Chris takes this seriously, and he guards that music, and he says, man, if anybody wants to get to the guitar, you've got to go through me. And he guards it, and week after week, Chris guards the music. Nobody gets close to it. But then one day, Officer Callan back there decides he wants Paul Reed's music. And so Officer Callan comes up, and he's a stout guy, and Chris is like, hey, I brought a sack lunch, and I'm going to fight you all day, man. And he's like, let's go at it. And so they're going at it, and, and Officer Callan brings him back up, and so like the entire PD is coming after him. And eventually, Chris succumbs, and, and he is overpowered, and he loses control of what he was guarding. Well, now here's the actual illustration that Jesus was trying to make. This man's life is what is being guarded. And the devil, Satan, had a hold on his life. He, was, he had him surrounded. Nobody could get close to him. The devil had a total grip on him. And then Jesus walked up. And Jesus overpowered evil. Because greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. And so Jesus overcomes Satan, and once Jesus takes a hold of your life, then everything changes, and here's where Americans begin to run, because the scriptures teach once Jesus takes control of your life, your life doesn't even belong to you. That Jesus is not just Savior, but Jesus is Lord. He invades every area. He directs. He leads. You belong to Him. And so we come to verse 23 where Jesus looks at the crowd and He makes this statement that is polarizing, it is divided, yet it is also narrow and it is unbelievably freeing. He says, anyone who is not with me is against me. And anyone who does not gather with me scatters. This is where, think with me, this is where a lot of people reject Jesus. Jesus' gift to you is not just eternal life. His gift to you is a transformed life. Yet often we have this quiet fear that we don't really want to articulate very much that if I trust Jesus with my life, if I fully place the totality of me in His care, if I'm truly devoted to Him in every way, then am I not surrendering my freedom to do whatever I want? And where this becomes particularly difficult for our culture is that nothing can be more un-American than surrendering my freedom. Now, stick with me. Here's the problem. What many consider freedom is in reality an illusion. Because freedom is not the ability to do whatever you want to do it, when you want to do it, without having any responsibility or consequences to your choices. We are all bound. We're all bound by restrictions. 
Your reactions have restrictions to them. Relationships bring restrictions to our life. We all have responsibilities. And in every area of your life, you have to make choices between which freedoms you will embrace. And there is another reality that limits your freedom, and that is your mortality. So here's what we often call freedom. Often what we call freedom isn't freedom at all. It's selfishness. What we argue for is the right to live life selfishly and to do what I want to do when I want to do it, and nobody can tell me what to do. But in reality, that is a complete illusion. You can't live life that way. Tim Keller illustrates. A man loves his family, and so he wants to be free to spend time with his family, and he hopes to get to a point in life where he doesn't have to work too hard and he can just spend all the time that he wants with his family. The man also loves to eat, (laughs) and so he wants to be able to eat what he wants to eat, and he wants to be able to do what he wants to do, and he wants the freedom to do that, and nobody's going to judge me, and I'm just going to do what I want to do. So this man who enjoys those freedoms, he goes to the doctor, and the doctor runs his test, and he comes back into the room, and he basically says, if you don't change what you eat, you're going to die soon. So now the man is torn. Because he can't choose to do all that he wants to do. The realization that his freedoms are limited become a reality there, and he must choose certain things. If he eats all that he wants to eat, then he won't be free to spend the time with his family. And so he has to make some choices in his life, and that's the reality of freedom. It's never completely... You just do what you want to do and just be selfish and think about you and you alone. It's always tied to relationships and responsibilities and the realities. And what we call freedom often ignores the ideal idea of our mortality. Because no matter what choices you make, looming somewhere out there is your destiny with death. So culture's idea of freedom if you drill down into it, is often selfishness. I'm just going to do it my way. Nobody has the right to say you can't do it. And if you try to stop me from doing whatever I want to do, then I must destroy you. But here's what I want you to get today. Selfishness is not freedom at all. In fact, selfishness is one of the root causes of sin. And when it is embraced as a virtue, your house is divided and it is destined to fall. Jesus in his teachings talks a lot about freedom. And he says, I am the path to freedom. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. He talks about the truth and how the truth will set you free. Jesus is continually talking about Freedom, But the freedom that Jesus offers you leads you away from selfishness. It frees you from the laws of sin and death. The freedom that Jesus offers you is not a license to do what you want. It is an empowerment to do what is right. The freedom that Jesus offers you does not attack truth. It defends truth. The freedom that Jesus offers you does not just accept you the way that you are, but it transforms you into the person you were created to be. 
the freedom that Jesus offers you does not drive you to selfish isolation, but it drives you beyond yourself to love others, to connect your life to the inner beauties of family and community. The freedom that Jesus offers you doesn't release you from responsibility, but it connects your responsibilities to true love, joy, and meaning. The freedom that Jesus offers you leads you to be the person that you were ultimately created to be. If you ever go to the gym, I know most of you guys do that at least twice a year. After Thanksgiving and Christmas, you're there, right? And so everybody's seen it at the gym. You'll see rows and rows of treadmills. What I like to do is watch the people on the treadmills. It's a little creepy, I know it, but, you know, you kind of watch the folks that are on the treadmills, and you'll never see a happy person on a treadmill. There's no one on a treadmill. It's just like, you know, maybe when they first get on there. But, after, I mean, you'll, you'll, see, you'll see real fit people on the treadmill. You'll see those that are just starting out. You'll see young. You'll see old. You'll see, um, you'll, you'll, you'll see people going real fast. You'll see people walking, people going uphill, people going flat. But no one's ever happy on the treadmill, and they're all going nowhere. No matter whether they go fast, slow, young, old, heavy, thin, no matter what, they all go nowhere. They start and stop in the same spot. In our society, many live on the treadmill of vanity. If you're a deeper thinker, you might call it the treadmill of hedonism. They're doing a lot of stuff. Real busy, full calendars, got to get the kids here, got to get the kids there. I have these dreams, I have these aspirations, here's what I got to do, got to make sure I fulfill this responsibility. And there's a lot of activity, there's a lot of movement, but ultimately you're running nowhere. Now here's the lie that you're taught, and students that are graduating, you were taught this lie from the time you were in preschool. It was fed to you even in your cartoons. The thought is that if I can just achieve this, if I can just graduate kindergarten, then I'll be there. If I can just get through high school, then I'll be there. If I can just get through college, then I'll be there. If I can just uh, go to grad school and get into a good school and, and fulfill the, the career calling that I have, if I can just get my... Um, if I can just get that job that, that, that I want to uh, get, if I can just uh, get that pay scale that I need to get to, then I will have arrived. If, if I can just uh, buy that house that I want, if I can just get to the point where I have financial freedom, then I will have arrived. If I can just, if I can just get the kids through the preschool years, if I can just survive till bedtime, if I can just make it to where they're, they're out, of, out of high school and they're sane again, if I can just make it to where where I get them through college, if we can just uh, make it to empty nester stage, if I can just make it to retirement, if I can just get to this point, if I can just keep on going a little bit longer, if I can just keep on moving, then I'll finally arrive. And, and society says to you over and over again, keep on moving, keep on going, do it your way, go as fast as you need to go, go as slow as you need to go, let everybody look at you, this is all about you, all right, you're doing it, you're going, you're going, we're going to cheer you on as you go, but here's the lie that they don't tell you, is that you're going nowhere. You're just on a treadmill in the same place. 
And there's not really freedom in it. There's madness. You're not a human doing, you're a human being. And Jesus didn't call you to be a slave. He didn't call you to be captive to selfishness and pride, which ultimately leads you to death. Jesus called you to freedom. He calls you to be free in Him. And here's the quiet little secret of love. You don't find it by saying people just need to accept me as who I am because life's all about me and they can come along in the journey with, the, with me if they want to. The quiet little secret of love is that you find love by giving love. The quiet little secret of life is that you discover the joy and the meaning and the purpose of life by surrendering your life. You are not God. God never called you to be God. What Jesus called you to do is to surrender your life in faith to Him and let Him turn you into the person He's created you to be. That's not giving up your freedom. That's experiencing freedom. Because that's what you were made to be. You're not the star of the show. God's the star of the show. You don't need to be anything you want to be. You need to be the person that God created you to be. You don't need to live anybody else's life. You need to live your life. You don't need to live your life only thinking about yourself. You need to figure out how can you give your way of your life so that you can connect who you are to your neighbor and to your community and to the world around you and draw other people to freedom as well. Freedom's not selfishness. Freedom ultimately is selflessness. It says, I surrender to God. He's my creator. He's my maker. He's my designer. And what I want for my life is that my life will reflect God in all things so that I have one singular goal in all that I do, in my marriage, in my parenting, in my job, in my studies, in the way that I see my community, in the way that I spend my resources, in all that I do, I simply want to bring glory to Him. The Bible says in the beginning he made us in his own image. He made us male and female in his own image. What does that mean? It means that our lives are supposed to reflect God and to reveal his glory working through us and around us. And I promise you, when you get off the treadmill of selfishness, when you get off the treadmill thinking, if I can just get this and do this and accomplish this, when you quit trying to be God and instead place your faith in God, That's where freedom is found. Because the freedom that Christ offers us is not limited by time. It's eternal life. It's a hope that goes beyond just getting into the school that you want to go to next year. It's a hope that goes beyond just getting a better job or a better raise or a nicer house. It's a hope that's connected to eternity. It's a hope that transcends me and connects us all together in this room into something called a church. One final question, and I'll be through. Has there ever been a time in your life where you trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord?
Would you be so kind as to bow your heads, please, as we come to a time of commitment? The band's going to come, lead us in a song, but before they do, I want us to have a time of prayer. And I want to ask that question again. Has there ever been a time in your life where you trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, as your Lord? If there hasn't been that time, I want to invite you to make this your moment. Your moment where you place your faith in Christ and you trust Him. Would you just call out to God right where you are? If this is your moment, just call out to God and say, Lord, I'm all in. I am trusting Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I'm bringing the sins of my past to the cross today. I'm asking your forgiveness. I'm embracing Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, and I'm asking you to change me from the inside out, to free me, to be the person you've created me to be. And I pray, Lord, that my life story will be your story and that people might be able to see you in me. Lord, this is my salvation moment where I give my life to you. Pray that prayer in the name of Jesus. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to call you out, but I do want to be a pastor to you. I'd love to talk to you more about what it means to be a believer. So I'm going to ask you to do one thing if this was your moment today. Would you just look up at me and allow me to make eye contact with you? Pastor Lash, today was my moment of salvation. Would you just look up at me and allow me to make eye contact with you wherever you might be? Today's my moment of salvation. I'm trusting in Christ as my Lord and Savior. Would you have the courage just to look this way? Father, I thank you for what you do in our hearts. I thank you, Father, that you free us and you allow us to live a life in a unique, wonderful way. And we pray, Lord, that we might have joy. We pray, Lord, that we might rejoice in hope, be patient during the difficult times, and persistent in prayer. Help us, Lord, to discover the joy of being alive in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray and sing. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing this morning.